2 Chronicles chapter 7. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And when I shut up heaven and there's no rain or command the locusts to devour land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And Father, that's really our prayer right now, Lord. We want to come to you and say, forgive us for how often we fall short, both as individuals and as a church and as a nation. Lord, we don't honor you in the way that you're worthy. We don't give you thanks for every good gift. We often rebel against the things that you say are good. And we prayed, forgive us. And Lord, we know that this promise is to Israel specifically. But we ask that you'd be gracious to us. And that you'd meet us, Lord. And Father, we thank you that you are really clear in your word that... The best is yet to come. And Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts afresh to that. And that, Lord, today we would, that would really capture our attention. It would become our vision. Not that we are complaining about the present, but the hope of the future helps us to be productive in the present. Lord, may may King Solomon be the example that the chronicler wanted him to be. Lord, may we learn what it means to look forward to the future. Please, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. So, I'm calling this message Solomon's Legacy. And and it's important that we, this is one of the few times when I really want you to know the title, because I really want you to know where we're going to go with this thing. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, uh, we read about Solomon and we see about the end of his life and we see a lot of the mistakes that he's made. But the chronicle here, this, this, the, the person who wrote the book of Chronicles, 1 and 2 Chronicles being one book, the one who wrote this, he writes this years and years after this stuff has taken place, years and years after 1 and 2 Kings has been written, 1 and 2 Samuel has been written. He's aware of all that Solomon does. All the people who would have read this would have been aware of all that Solomon had done. And yet, in this section, he only talks about the good stuff. He doesn't talk about the junk. And that's significant. Because the, the scripture specifically is, does not shy away from people's junk. <laughs> One of, the, one of the things that's amazing about the scripture is how honest it is about the people in it. There's only one character in all the scripture that can be called a hero. His name is Jesus. Amen. Everybody else is messed up. And so yet here, the author of Chronicles wants us to see Solomon as somebody who's left a legacy. And there's a reason for this. There's a reason for this that would motivate the first readers. And there's a reason for this that's meant to motivate us. That we are to see the the whole extent of Solomon's success and remember the best is yet to come. So I'm going to talk about four main things that we learn, four main, uh, I guess, teachings that we get from Solomon, lessons that we get from Solomon's reign and what they teach us about the kingdom of God that we're in presently. 
So, first, in, in chapter 7, verses 12 to 22, let's look at the king's obedience, because the king's obedience is the destiny of the kingdom. So, in verses 12 to 14, we just read that, God is, is speaking to Solomon in a dream. And as he's speaking to Solomon, he's affirming, he's confirming the specifics that Solomon had prayed before, that we looked at last week. Solomon had said, God, okay, when this thing happens and your people turn to you, would you forgive them? And when this thing happens and your people turn to you, would you forgive them? And God, if you remember last week, God said amen by what? Sending that pillar of fire, whoosh, down to consume the altar. As a way to God, God kind of putting his amen to, to the prayer of Solomon. Or here, God's speaking to Solomon, just to make sure Solomon doesn't miss the point, and saying to him clearly in a dream, Solomon, I'm saying yes, I'm going to do this. He's confirming the specifics of Solomon's prayer. In fact, we look at verse 15, and I love the language that, that the author writes and puts in the, in, in the words in God's mouth, what God would have said to Solomon. Says, now my eyes, God says to Solomon, my eyes will be opened and my ears attentive to the prayers made in this place. For I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Isn't that a great promise? That God doesn't just say, yeah, okay, fine. You say your prayers and you poor heathens all answer. God says, no, my eyes and my heart I remember when, um, well, actually, with each of my children were born, when they're first born, you just can't stop staring at them. Sometimes Sarah and I, when the kids were little and we put them to bed, we'd be finally resting and relaxing, and then we'd want to go to bed, but we'd think, oh, let's go look at the kids really quick. <laughs> because they were just so beautiful to us. And quiet. <laughs> and quiet at that point, yes. They all look like they're angels when they're sleeping, don't they? But that heart, that heart of just... Not because that, that other little person has done anything for you except to become the object of your love. That really is our Father's heart towards us. And this is the heart that, 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 that God is communicating to Solomon. Solomon, you did what I wanted you to do. You built this temple. And this is, I'm answering your prayer. This is where my heart's going to be. This is what I'm going to do. But then we get into verses 17 and 22 where God begins to clarify the consequences of Solomon's behavior. There's going to be good and bad consequences depending on Solomon's behavior. And this is significant. God says to Solomon through this dream, verse 17, As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, and do according to all that I have commanded you, if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with uh, covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man as a ruler in Israel. And so God's really clear to him, listen, I made this promise to David. If you remember from way back in chapter 17 of, of uh, I think it was of One Chronicles, that when God made this covenant, this contract based in love with David, it was an unconditional covenant. So God had said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make sure you always have a descendant on your throne. But here there's a condition with Solomon. He's saying with Solomon, listen, if you follow me, in a real simple way, what he's saying, listen, you walk with me, your God, and your reign will be eternal. But then he says this very sobering in verse, seven, uh, verse 19. He says, but if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them. 
And this house which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone will pass by it, uh, will, will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord of God of their fathers, who brought them uh, out of the land of Egypt, and embraced other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. Pretty heavy, sobering stuff. And the thing I really want you to see about this is the fact that when God makes a promise to to Solomon, he says, Solomon, you walk with me, you'll benefit. But he says, you don't walk with me, and everybody loses out. And God says this because he wants Solomon to understand. He gives this, this revelation through a dream because he wants Solomon to understand And he wants those who would know about the dream to understand that the king, what the king does, the people follow. This is the way it works. The king's obedience determines the destiny of the kingdom. Now, we read this, and here's what we know. This was written uh, several hundred years after these things took place. So, the, the, the author of 1 and 2 Chronicles, he writes this in around 400 BC. And he's looking back, as we've said before, at all of Israel's history. And he's kind of preaching sermons through his writing about their history. And 1 and 2 Chronicles is meant to be, remember, remember an encouragement to those who have come back into Jerusalem to rebuild it. To rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. And you read this and you go, how is that comforting? Because they knew, this is why, because they knew that what God had promised Solomon, and they knew that promise had always been there, what God had promised Solomon came to pass. Because even though it's not written here, Solomon did worship other gods, and the kingdom eventually did split, and eventually did fall apart, and eventually both sides of the kingdom went into captivity. And Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. So what's interesting here is you're going, okay, well, how then is this encouraging? All you're doing is reminding us what we already know. Solomon blew it. This is why. You guys know this verse, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is a famous Christmas verse, right? For unto or for to us a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now when Isaiah wrote that, it was about 300 years before the author of Chronicles wrote this, but about 100 years after, listen, after the kingdom had fallen apart. And so it was meant to be a prophecy, a prediction that God would one day provide a king for Israel who would not mess up, who would not fail. The government would be on his shoulders, and this king would be more than just a great king. This king would be a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And so when they're reading about uh, uh, Solomon's, uh, or the the fact that God's saying to Solomon, here's what's going to happen, they're not looking back at Solomon and going, man, why did you blow it? They're looking forward towards the Messiah. One day there will be a king who will obey God perfectly, and because he obeys God perfectly, the kingdom will be perfect. This is the king that we have in Jesus. Listen to this. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. Guys, do you you recognize this? Do you know why we have such hope for the kingdom? Because we have such a great king. You see, where Solomon failed, Jesus succeeded. Where you and I fail, Jesus succeeded. You have, you have, I have, naturally speaking, wanted to be the kings of our own lives. How's that going so far? We, we, we see what happens. Even as Jesus followers, we kind of say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but I'm going to kind of keep control of this bit. I'll be the king of this bit. And what happens? That bit always falls apart. But when we say, Lord, you and you alone, Jesus, have obeyed perfectly... You and you alone can give me a perfect righteousness as a gift. And therefore, you and you alone are worthy to be followed as king. See, Christ's obedience is our destiny. Now, we don't obey perfectly now, do we? We don't always have the heart for it. We don't always have the power for it. We don't always obey as we should. But guess what? One day we're going to. How do we know that? Because Jesus did. And even when his obedience cost his life, what happened three days later? He rose from the dead, just as he said he would, just as the Father promised he would. And the Bible says, listen, the Bible says the power that raised God from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead, that power works in us who believe. It's amazing, isn't it? The king's obedience is the destiny of the kingdom. Second thing, chapter 8, verses 1 to 18. The king's orders are the direction of the kingdom. I'm going to read 10 verses now, so really try to follow along and pay attention, okay? It came to pass at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house that the cities which Haram had given to Solomon, Solomon built them. He settled the children of Israel there and Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and seized it. He also built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the storage cities which he built in Hamath. He built Upper Beth Haran and Lower Beth Haran, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars. Also Baaleth and, and the storage cities that Solomon had and all the chariot cities and the cities of Calvary, uh, of the Calvary, and, and all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and all the land of his dominion. And all the people who were left, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Mormites, all who, had, who were not in, of Israel, that is their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel did not destroy, these Solomon raised for, from these Solomon raised forced labor as it is this day. But Solomon did not make the children of Israel servants for his work. Some of the men were, war, uh, some were men of war, some were captains of the officers, some were captains of the chariots of his cavalry. And others were chiefs of the officials of King Solomon, 250 who ruled over the people. A lot of information to make a basic point. Solomon did loads of stuff. And the stuff that Solomon did, listen, the stuff that he did, the, the buildings that he did, even the one city that we see that he had a kind of a military exploit in, because Solomon was a man of peace, he didn't have to really fight at all. But one city he went to seize. Even that, he took that city and he built it up. In other words, Solomon prioritized building up what would benefit God's people. That's what he did. Now this is important. So this, there's an application to us in a minute. We'll get to it in a minute. Verse 11. 
Now Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built. For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. So in the word Solomon said, The house that I would normally live in, which is near the temple, I'm going to build a separate house for my wife who's not of the tribe of Israel. Because that place is so holy, she has to be separate from that. Now, listen. He goes on to say, where have I lost my place? What verse? Thank you. (laughs) So then Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built uh, before the vestibule, according to the daily rate. Notice, offering according to the commandment of Moses. For the Sabbath, the new moons, and the three appointed yearly feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And according to the order of David his father, he appointed the division of the priests and the service, the Levites and their duties, to the praise and service before the feast. Drop down to verse 16. Now all the work of Solomon was well ordered from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord until it was finished, so the house of the Lord was completed. Now, the author here has given us, again, lots of detail. And what he wants us to see here is that Solomon didn't just build up things that would be a blessing to God's people. In other words, he didn't just take the resources that he acquired and kind of build up his bank account. He took those resources and built places that would bless all of God's people. But also, listen, he makes the arrangement of worship, and we've seen this before, but he makes all the arrangement for worship in the temple according to God's word. That's what he does. So here's two characteristics about sort of his orders, the way he kind of kept things well-ordered. Here's what Solomon does. He makes sure that he prioritizes the building up of God's people, what was going to benefit the most of God's people, and also he makes sure that the, the worship that he's arranging is according to God's word. These are his priorities. Good directions. There's something else that you need to understand. Verse 17. Then Solomon went to Ezion, a Zion, sorry, Geber, and Eloth on the sea coast in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent shi- him ships by the hand of the servants and the servants who knew the sea. And they went with the servants of Solomon to Ophir and acquired 450 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. Now, you wouldn't sort of know this. I could have maybe made a, a graphic with a map and it would have been more obvious. But what, what, one of the things that the author is saying here is Solomon, as he's building all these things, investing in things that will benefit all, all God's people, and as he's establishing proper biblical worship in the center in Jerusalem, he's also continuing to move outward. In other words, that, that he's expanding outward. Now this is important because it points forward to us For something that our king does. Because our king Jesus, when he came, he said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. He was God's chosen king, the king of Israel. He came focused on Israel specifically. But one of the things you notice if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I challenge you to do that if you haven't done it yet, read the Gospels. But one of the things you'll notice is, is how often he had interaction with non-Jewish people. I mean, even to the point that the, some of his Jewish, all, all his Jewish apostles that he, he chose and the Jewish cities that he was in were kind of like, Oi, what are you doing talking to these Gentiles, these dirty Gentiles? But Jesus, his vision, the vision of the Father, has always been bigger than just Israel. It's always been outward looking. 
You can read anywhere in the scripture and you see the promises that God gives to Israel are meant so that Israel becomes a blessing to the rest of the world. And so here, here's what Solomon's doing. He's outward looking. Now this is important because we have a mandate from our king to be outward looking. Listen to what the scripture says. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Christianity is not a white British religion. Our savior wasn't white or British. Or American, thank God. (laughs) The scripture also says that we are to walk in wisdom to those who are outside. In other words, those who aren't in the kingdom yet. We should be walking with wisdom, redeeming the time, which is basically a way to say, don't waste time. Try to get to know people on the outside. Listen, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet a Jesus follower, at least not what you sense maybe we're talking about, we are super glad you're here and we really want you to know something, okay? We want you to know that we don't want you just to be here at church. We really want you to know this Jesus. Do you know why? Because this Jesus really wants you to know him. He really does. He's always interested on those on the outside, not just those on the inside. In fact, this is in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, what we have here is a kind of the standards for leaders, the qualifications for leaders. And one of the qualifications for a leader is, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside. By the grace of God, we will not appoint leaders who don't have a good testimony outside. Because we want those who are helping you follow Jesus and are there to kind of protect you from things that would keep you from following Jesus. That those people are known as Jesus followers to those who aren't Jesus followers. They have a good reputation. doesn't mean that everyone thinks they're cool or likes them. But it means that they go, you know, that, that guy, he's a little bit into Jesus too much, but he's the real deal. That's the idea. So, so he, he, I hope you get my point here. Solomon gave these orders to, yes, build up the God's people. Make sure that God's people, first and foremost, are, are, are benefiting. Yes, to make sure that we're worshiping according to God's word. That cannot be compromised. But it was always about moving outward. It was always about reaching the out, people on the outside to bring them in. To invite them in. Man, if you don't get anything else, get this today. Listen. The Bible, when the Bible speaks of Jesus as obeying the Father and humbling himself to go to the point of the cross, which we just read a couple of minutes ago, you need to see that. Please, you need to see that in a very real way, in a very serious way. You need to see the coming of Christ as if God is bowing the knee saying, will you marry me? If that metaphor makes you feel weird, maybe some of you guys feel weird about that. I don't know. It's also God's way of saying, I want to adopt you into my family. And what's amazing about that, listen, what's amazing about that is the scripture's really clear that before God gets a hold of us and opens our eyes, we're enemies of God. Not that God's an enemy to us. We're an enemy to him. Don't want you in my life. Leave me alone. I don't care if you're the king. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's our attitude. And yet God doesn't just say, hey, watch out. God comes to us in the form of Jesus. He, in a real sense, God bows the knee by becoming a human. He humbles himself and says, I want a relationship with you. I'm dying to pay for that sin of rebellion so that we can have a relationship. That's what he's doing. Can you see why the king's orders set the direction for the kingdom? Yes, we have to be committed to each other. 
the evidence that the gospel is real, the good news of Jesus is real, is that we as Christians love each other. And people need to see that. People should I hope if you came to church today and you're not a Christian, that you see people loving each other. Not perfectly, we know we still fall short, but you do see that. Man, these people are committed to each other because that is the evidence of the gospel. But we're doing that, for, for one of the reasons we, we're, we're called to do that is because we want to reach out and invite people into that love. So this is what Solomon does, right? He's always looking outward. Chapter 9, verse, verse 1. says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with hard questions, having a very great retinue, uh, camels that bore spices, gold in abundance, precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And so Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for Solomon that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen, and when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers, and all the apparel. This is a biblical way of saying the bling. And his entryway by which he had went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Now that sounds like a negative. There's no more spirit in her. But it's not a negative. What this is a picture of, this is this Queen of Sheba, a very famous queen. Is She's heard of, of Solomon's uh, reputation. She's heard of the claims of this wisdom that he supposedly has from the creator God. She politely brings some very nice gifts to have come into his presence. And then she begins to grill him. I mean, she's given them some tough questions. Now, if, you've been a, if, you've, if you make yourself known as a Jesus follower, what do you get? Some tough questions. And I think one of the, the wisest things that we can do is admit that they're tough questions. In fact, listen, if you're asked a question by uh, someone who's not yet a Jesus follower and you, you've made yourself known as a Jesus follower and they're asking you a tough question, if you don't know the answer, don't fudge it. You'll probably say something that will really mess things up. Say, you know, I don't really know. Say, I don't know. I'm going to go ask someone else. I'm going to see if I can get you a good answer for that. But one of the things is, why that's a good thing, this is one of the reasons it's good for us to make ourselves known as Jesus followers, is when people ask us those questions, if we don't know, it's going to be good for us to know. Not just helpful for them, good for us. This is great because you, you see this with Jesus. Jesus was asked tough questions. Now Solomon had some wisdom, but we'll see in a bit. Jesus blew him away. You look at the kind of, the, when the enemies, uh, uh, the religious people of Jesus' day were always trying to trap Jesus with tough questions. And they would be blown away by how he would answer. Things like, okay, I'll answer that question, but first answer me this question. Then, then he'd ask a question they couldn't answer, and they'd all, oh! had to just walk away. We're going to experience that. Now what's interesting, when it says there's no more spirit in her, what this means is, she has her answers, her questions answered, and she realizes, I've got to stop being so argumentative. I'm going to make a very bold statement here. A very, very bold statement. I've been in ministry, oh man, I'm going to say how old I am now. I've been in ministry since 1991. How many of you guys were not born in 1991? Gosh, I'm old. And I have to say, and I didn't grow up in the church either, I should say that as well. So I've, I've come with all my cynical questions. I'm still a bit of a cynic, to be honest. 
But every single question that I've ever been asked, there is a reasonable answer to in the person of Jesus and what he's done. I'm not saying it's the exclusive answer, like nobody else has anything reasonable or valid to say. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that I know these things in a, in a, in a sense of objectively, uh, like in a scientific way. Some of them I do, some of them I don't. But when it comes to any kind of philosophy or religious question that you could possibly have, and you need to know this, everybody does philosophy before they do science. You have to do philosophy first. If you don't know that, go ask your science professors. They'll tell you that's true. And the, and the default philosophy is materialism if you didn't know. But if you start with a philosophy of there, there could be a creator God, it changes everything. And if you look at life's problems and life's questions and the things that are so difficult about our existence, you know what happens? Eventually you come to a place that the answers, the best answers, are in the gospel of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's a bold statement. It's a challenge to you to ask. To ask. Again, I might even have to say, you know, I'm not sure. But I, can, I know where I can get the answers. Because I know that Jesus himself is the answer. See, the king's tests are experienced in the kingdom. Why would we think that Solomon's going to get these tests just to show that he's wise? Sure. Jesus is going to get these tests just to show that he's the wisdom incarnated? Sure. But what about us? We get it so that we can know wisdom incarnated. We can know God personally. We can know the wisdom himself. So she asks these questions and she gets to the point and she's got, oh, no more argument for me, man. And now she knows she's got a choice to make. So verse 5 says, Then she said to the king, It was true, a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe their words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, half of the greatness of your wisdom has not been told me. You exceed the fame of which I've heard. Happy are your men. Happy are, those, uh, are these, uh, your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne to be, uh, king for, uh, to be king for the Lord your God because your God has loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them. Listen to the point. To do justice and righteousness. And so she gave the king 120 talents of silver, spices in abundance, and precious stones. And I love this little footnote. There never were any spices such as those the, uh, the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. The curry was amazing. <laughs> now, now, listen, listen. I really, this is an important thing. This Queen of Sheba is known in secular literature as somebody who had herself great wisdom. And she wants questions answered, guess what they're about? Justice and righteousness. Isn't that where our questions revolve around? Why is there so much suffering in the world? That's a justice question. Who's to say what's right or wrong? That's a righteousness question. She sees in Solomon, Solomon, man, the creator God has raised you up because you answer those questions better than anybody else. And guess what? Solomon didn't even come close to the real answers. He only got to scratch the surface. Now look at verse 10. We're almost done. Also the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon who brought gold from Ophir, brought uh, all gum wood.
and precious stones, and the king made walkways of the algum wood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also harps and string instruments for singers, and there were uh, none uh, such as these seen before in the land of Judah. Just amazing, beautiful instruments. Now King Solomon, notice, gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, much more she, uh, than she had brought to the king. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. This is important because here, here's what we see with Solomon here. His generosity displays who he worships. Because what he does is he didn't just kind of talk wisdom. He takes again these gifts and he invests them in the worship of God. But what else does he do? She comes and goes, you're the one, man. You, you demand, Solomon. Here's all the stuff I brought. What does Solomon do? Now I'm going to give you more back. This is exactly what our king does for us. We cannot outgive God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not one of these weird prosperity guys on TV. I'm not saying if you give $100 today, you'll get 1000 back. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is this. There's no more safer investment than investing in what God wants for us. Saying, Lord, I'm all yours. I'm all yours. Now, here's what's interesting. The Queen of Sheba, what is she doing? She's seeking the wise, the powerful, and the wealthy. Why? So she can benefit. It's exactly what we do. We seek the wise, the, intelli- the, the powerful, the wealthy. This is why we choose the TV shows that we choose. This is why we watch the programs we watch, read the magazines we, reach, uh, we, we, we read, because we deem them to be wise, wealthy, powerful, beautiful. And we hope that rubs off on us. But here's what's amazing. Here's what's so upside down about God's kingdom. God chooses to, and uses the foolish, the powerless, the despised. How do I know that? Because it's exactly what the scripture says. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Paul writes, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. He chooses the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chooses things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and uses them to bring what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. I used to think God chose me because I'm so great. I did. I, I remember when I first became a Christian, and I knew I was a sinner. I knew I needed God's forgiveness. And I knew that God had forgiven me, and I was like so excited about the, the prospect of heaven to be with God forever. Glorious. And I was thinking, God, this is great. I get to go to heaven, and you got a great guy on your team. <laughs> Bully for you, Lord. And then the longer I walked, or maybe I should say the more I fell, the more I realized I'm the fool. I'm the powerless. I'm the despised. I'm the big tough guy who cries so easy. <laughs> and yet God would choose me. God would use me. God chooses you. God chooses to use you. 
You see, the legacy of Solomon is not, he's so grand. No, the legacy of Solomon is that he points to him who is so grand. Who chooses the foolish and the powerless and the despised. In verse 13 of chapter 9, this is what we read. The weight of gold that Solomon yearly, or, or uh, that came to Solomon yearly, was 666 talents of gold. Don't go all weird antichrist. That's probably a, not what that means. Besides what the traveling merchants and traders brought, and all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon, and King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. Guys, you realize gold is a very soft metal. It's worthless as a shield. This is purely decoration. Can you imagine having so much wealth that you think, let's make everything out of gold? <laughs> Why not? This is where he was. He, did, he made a certain size, 300 of them, another size of, of gold uh, uh, shields, uh, 200 of them. And he put these in his, basically, the house of the force of Lebanon, verse 16, which is basically probably just a, a museum of, of how rich he was. <laughs> Moreover, it says the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold and so on and so forth. And here's what it says in verse 19. It says, the, the last sentence there says, Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. Now, this is important because what Solomon is doing, this, this must have been kind of an interesting one for the first readers to apply. It's easier for us. And it's easy for us because Solomon, like Jesus, presents an attractive but unattainable standard. Solomon sets a standard for the Israelites, for, for kings after him, that no one can even come close to. When it comes to the wealth and the wisdom that he had. Jesus does something similar to us. See, when Jesus says, come follow me, he's not saying, your following is earning you salvation. It's earning you a right place with God. He's not saying that. He says, come follow me. The invitation itself puts you in a right place with God. As soon as you respond to the invitation of Jesus, come follow me, you're in the privileged position of being in, in a right relationship with God because Jesus obeyed perfectly. If you look at the standard of Jesus, and this is the thing too, people want to say, okay, I'm a good person. Really, because the standard of goodness is Jesus himself. Did you love the way he loved? This was the last time you died for someone else's sins. Oh yes, but I'd take a bullet for somebody, John, or I'd jump in front of a bush to, pu to push somebody away. Great, let me know how that goes next time it happens. <laughs> but the truth is this, how about this? Have you... Loved your enemies? Because Jesus did. Because Jesus does. And we go, oh, Lord, you call me to this. I don't think I can do it. God says, that's the point. The point is, you can't do it, but I can. We look at Jesus and we go, oh, I want to be like that, but how do I get that way? This is what we're going to see. Verses 20 and 28, it says, Even kings, the king Solomon's drinking vessels were made of gold. Everything's made of gold. Gold here, gold there. He had a private zoo, it says at the end of verse 21. Ivory, apes, and monkeys, or it could be peacocks, we don't really know. 
And it says in verse 22, So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, notice, which God had put in his heart. In other words, the the point that the author wants to remind the readers of is that like Jesus, Solomon communicated a wisdom that's not of this world. The first readers need to know, hey, the wisdom that Solomon had, that came from God, not from him. And if God's given out wisdom, let's ask for it. But we bring this to the New Testament, and here's what we see. We see Jesus living in a way, teaching in a way, doing miracles in a way, that show us he's got to be God in human form. He's got to be the one we're supposed to trust. Because he communicated with a wisdom that's just not of this world. It's interesting how people, when I talk about loving your enemies, or we talk about, we talk about, let's talk about other things that we all think are good. Does anybody here think it's a bad thing to help the poor? Does anybody here think it's a bad thing to try to get people healthy or healed? What about education for the masses? Anybody think that's a bad thing? Do you realize that all that stuff only came because people were motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's why it's so prevalent in Western nations that were once very Christian and not so prevalent in other places. It's a fact. Because he lived in such a way that communicated a wisdom that is counter-cultural. That doesn't fit normal human desires. See, if, if your morality is conformed to a Christian morality, to where you're tempted to think, yeah, I think I'm pretty good. I don't know if I actually need Jesus to die for me. I, I like the moral stands, like the teachings he gave. If you're doing that, do you realize you're only borrowing from Christianity anyway? And how, high, how close to that standard do you need to get before you're right with God? According to God, perfectly. See, like Jesus, as I said, Solomon presents an attractive but unattainable standard. Like Jesus, Solomon communicates a wisdom not of this world. But what happens to Solomon, it says really clear in verse 29, the rest of Solomon's acts, they're written in all these different uh, places that the, the first readers could have found out more about him. But it says in verse 30 that Solomon uh, reigned in Jerusalem all of, uh, over all Israel for 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers. It means he died and was buried in the city of David. See, unlike Jesus, Solomon is still dead. The legacy of Solomon is, you could be this good, and it's not good enough. But something better came. With Jesus, it came. Listen to this. Jesus challenges those who listen to him with these words in Luke chapter 11, verse 31. I'll close with these words. He says, the queen of Sheba will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation. This is the generation he's teaching. And condemn them. For she came to the end, from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Guys, listen. You need to know something. You're not going to find anything greater. I am challenging you to find any greater wisdom. Any greater justice, any greater righteousness than what is found in Jesus Christ. Because there might be some grand ideas, 
But Jesus was able to put his money where his mouth was. He was able not just to do the miracles that only God could do. He was able to say, go ahead and destroy this temple, talking of his own body. And in three days, I will build it back up. And that's what he did. Hey, you might be able to predict your own death, but I doubt you're going to be able to predict your own resurrection. But Jesus did. We're not talking about just a historical figure God the Son, clothed in human flesh, is still alive today. In fact, He's with us today by His Spirit. Right here, right now. It's Him who's convincing you of this truth. It's Him we need to respond to. And Father, oh Lord, Your Word says, I think we're going to learn this next week, that Father, You're the one that leads us to Jesus. And if You don't lead us to Jesus, we'll be blind. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, for those of us who claim to be Jesus' followers, help us to follow him more, to trust him more, to believe that what he's done on our behalf is enough. And that basis makes him worthy to be trusted for everything else. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know you, Father, would you even now be convincing them? Lord, would you challenge them in their heart of hearts? Why don't they believe? And bring them to a place of faith. Or at least a place where they can test with those hard questions. Father, do for us what only you can do. And help us, Lord, as we just end the the formal part of the service. Help us to keep loving each other. Help us to know what it means to to walk with you on a day-to-day basis. Because, Lord, we, we just bring this to you for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.